got to uh, I got to see a little bit of the stick drama that they're working on during Sunday school this morning, and we are all in for a treat on Easter. I can tell you that. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me this morning to Second Samuel chapter twelve. Second Samuel twelve. If you're looking in the pew Bible, you ought to find it on page three thirty four. Year twelve fifteen, just over eight hundred years ago, a group of uh, English barons forced King John to sign a document called the Magna Carta. You probably heard of it in uh, some history class back in the day. What made that document so groundbreaking was its very existence. The idea that a king could have his power limited by a legal document that he was not supreme, but that he was bound himself to the law of the land. And for the past 800 years, that document, the Magna Carta, has served as the basis for constitutional forms of government. The first settlers that came over from England to the New World brought it with them as a way of saying, this is what we want to do. And so it's this it's, it's, that's the kind of government we have today, constitutional government, everyone, including those in power, president, legislators, uh, Supreme Court justices, they're all subject to the laws of the land. I was thinking about that document this week. The reason I thought about it was because of what we're going to read today in Second Samuel 12, and it occurred to me that the Magna Carta was not the first of its kind. Some 2,500 years before that, God, through Moses, gave his people a series of laws, and he made it clear to them that even their kings would be subject to the law. That, in fact, the kings of Israel were supposed to be models of obedience to God's word. And so uh, David is not supreme. The Lord is supreme and he has spoken in his word and David is subject to his word. Now, last Sunday we saw David plunge headlong into sin. And this morning we're going to see what happens when the sinful actions of the earthly king come up against the holiness of God, the heavenly king. And so let's read together in 2 Samuel 12, and we're going to begin in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arm and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. 
Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Let's pray together. Lord, um, I pray, God, that we would be chastised by your word this morning. Lord, so often your word speaks... uh, comfort to us, and we, we do hear um, some of your grace to David, but Lord, also we hear a good dose of the sinfulness of sin and of your holiness and uh, the consequences of sin. And so, God, I pray that you would help us, Lord, as we, as we hear this story of David, God, that we would see, as it were, in a mirror, a picture of our own sin and... Um, God, that by seeing uh, our sinfulness before you, that we would be better equipped to behold your glory full of grace and truth. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to, before we get too far this morning, I want to try to head off a potential misreading of this passage. There's a temptation when you read these 15 verses to think, boy, Nathan was really sticking it to David, um, or to think, man, God really dropped the hammer on David. And if your reaction to this passage is to scoff at David's sin or to kind of snicker at his thick headedness, you know, Nathan comes and tells him the story and he doesn't pick up on the fact that he's telling him a story about himself, if your reaction is to think, boy, Nathan, I mean, David is surely thick-headed, then um, you're being just as thick-headed as David was, right? The, the point, one of the points of the story is we all have an easier time seeing the sinfulness of other people's sin than we do of our own sin. David had an easier time seeing the sinfulness of his sin when he thought Nathan was telling him a story about someone else, And so the temptation for us is to do the very thing David did, which is to look at this and say, man, that guy David is so sinful, right? When what we need to see is, well, this is is a picture of of how we deceive ourselves, how we all do this, very thing that David did. And so I want to caution us against self-righteousness as we read this morning. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul actually warns us about that very thing, about self-righteousness when we read Old Testament stories. He says, speaking about things that happened in the Old Testament, he says, now, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. And then he says in the very next verse, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So, that's a warning when we read stories from the Old Testament is that we don't look at the Israelites or we don't look at Moses or Abraham or David or any other character and see their sin and think, boy, they were, they were just way more sinful than I am and I would never ever in a million years do what they did. The warning from Paul, from the Holy Spirit is 
Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So what I want to do is I want to lay out six truths of which we need to take heed lest we fall. The first truth, we need to take heed of the wages of sin. We see that in verses 1 through 8. One of David's responsibilities as king would be to issue judgments on various uh, matters. If there were some particularly uh, difficult case, uh, someone might bring that to the king and say, King, what should we do here? And that's exactly what Nathan does. We, it's not clear if the story that Nathan tells him was a real case. It, it very well could have been. This very well could have happened. Or it could have been, you know, effectively some parable that Nathan made up for, the, for this moment. But either way, Nathan comes and tells David a story and invites him to fulfill his responsibility as king, which is to issue a judgment. Nathan could have said, okay, David, here's what you've done wrong. Here's a list of all the ways you have sinned. Instead, he tells him a story about a rich man who had everything he could ever want, but he chose instead to take a poor man's one and only lamb. And Nathan's strategy works as we see. David is too enraged at the injustice that this rich man does to see that uh, Nathan is telling him a story about himself. Again, we often have an easier time seeing the offensiveness of our sin when we think that it's being projected on someone else. Nathan does not even have time to ask David what he thinks he should what he thinks should be done before David is flying off the handle. Verse 5, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. So David knew the truth that Paul would later state so concisely in Romans 6:23 that the wages of sin is death. The man who has done this deserves to die. The problem for David is that so far he has acknowledged the wages of sin, but he has yet to confess how he himself has earned those wages. And Nathan's response to David is shattering. Four words, you are the man. The man that I just told you about, David, that's you. You are the man. The very verdict that you have just declared that the one who has done this deserves to die. You've just issued your own sentence, David. And so the first truth that we need to take heed of this morning is the wages of sin. The second truth of which we need to take heed is the nature of sin. We see this in verse 9, the nature of sin. Look again with me at verse 9. This is God speaking to David through Nathan. He says to David, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now in verse 9, God is, is helping David. He's doing something very crucial for David. He's, he's helping him to see that there are two dimensions to his sin. The whole law, Jesus said, can be summed up in two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you take the Ten Commandments, you can break them down. They all could be summed up in one of those two ways. Love 
The Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. What God's helping David see is, David, you have failed on both levels. You have sinned against your neighbor. Of course, David is not the one who took the sword and struck Uriah, but he is responsible for it. God says to him, You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So David did not literally kill Uriah, but he is responsible for it because he put Uriah in a position to be murdered. And so he has, David has sinned against his neighbor and Nathan's going to lay out some consequences for that sin in just a moment. But the more urgent matter is that David has sinned against the Lord. He begins in verse 9 with, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in His sight? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount to, um, to beware of the one who can kill both body and soul. Right? So uh, someone could come along here and say, Well, David, you, here's all the ways you've sinned. You, you did this and this and this. You were corrupt and you committed murder. And so they could, they could kill David's body if they wanted to. But the more urgent matter is there, there's a greater one before whom David has to stand. And the greater question is, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Last week, when David got word that Uriah had been killed, he told Joab, uh, his commander, he said, do not let this matter displease you. Literally, do not let this matter be evil in your sight. Chapter 11 ended by saying, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And that is now the truth that God is telling David via Nathan. You have despised the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in His sight. Even if you think you can conceal it from anyone else, David, even if you think that other people will still approve of you no matter what you've done, what you have done is evil in the sight of the Lord. That is the nature of all sin. We live in a world where we, we have this idea that, well, as long as what I've done is not worse than what someone else has done, well, then I'm okay. Or, or as long as I feel good about what I did, then it's okay. And here comes the Word of God just trampling on that idea to say, no, sin is sin. No matter what you think or no matter what anyone else thinks, sin is sin. No matter how we think our sin impacts other people, no matter how we think it impacts ourselves, what makes sin sinful is not what we think about it or what other people think about it, but it's that it is an offense to a holy God. It is contrary to His character, contrary to what He has called us to be and to do as His image bearers. And so we need to hear that question as a question to us as well. God could very well ask any one of us that question, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? to do what is evil in His sight. So, having said that, David's sin certainly impacted his relationship with God, but it, it did also have an impact on his neighbor, specifically Bathsheba and Uriah, and you could say the entire nation of Israel. And so, the third truth that we need to take heed of this morning is the consequences of sin. The wages of sin is death. We're going to hear that sentence commuted in just a moment. But first, Nathan makes clear that the consequences of sin for David are not going to go away. This truth is particularly sobering because David, by God's grace, is going to be restored and reconciled to the Lord. He's going to be forgiven. But that 
restoration and that forgiveness is not going to change the fact that Uriah is dead and that David has taken a man's wife who was not his own. So God announces to David that the consequences of his sin will be severe and long-lasting. Look with me again at verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. God has made a lot of hope-filled promises to David, but these promises are filled with sorrow. God says the evil is going to rise up against David out of his own house. What he has done to Uriah in secret will be done to him publicly. All these promises are sadly going to come to pass. In the short term, God tells David in verse 14, that because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. That is, uh, that's a tough verse, isn't it? Uh, we're going to reflect some more on that next week, Lord willing. Colby's going to preach on the following verses. But we need to just pause here and shudder at this fact that sin always costs more than we would like to pay. Sin always costs more than we would like to pay. We have that happen in real life sometimes, don't we? If you ever go and buy a car, you know, they, they have a price on the window. But then you go in and you start talking to them and it's like, oh, well, we forgot to tell you about this fee that's $1,000, you know. And there's, there's, there's the destination fee and there's the origination fee and there's all these other stuff. It always costs more than you think it's going to cost. And sin is the same way. It has a sticker price. It says... No big deal. It says free. David, all you've got to do is just take what you want and you'll, you'll get all this satisfaction that you think you've been lacking. But then it ends up costing way more than we would like to pay. So we have to just kind of humble ourselves before the Lord here and say, okay, God is righteous, He's just, He's the judge of all the earth who always does what is right. He gives and He takes away. And rather than interrogating the Lord and asking, well, is this right what God did? Rather than interrogating the Lord, we need to interrogate ourselves and ask, how often do we think and speak and act without counting the cost, without considering the consequences? Sin often promises us a great reward, but it always proves costly. We'd like to deceive ourselves into thinking that we're the only ones it affects, but that cost often spreads to others. Usually the cost that sin brings, we don't, we're not the only ones who have to pay it. We usually make people around us pay it as well. And even when God extends forgiveness, He is not obligated to remove the consequences of our sin. In fact, He often allows them to remain so that we will be chastised and disciplined for future holiness because God disciplines those whom He loves. God is not just in the business of forgiving sin. His desire is to conform us to the likeness and holiness of His Son. And the way He does that sometimes 
is by lovingly letting us live with the consequences of our sin so that we will no longer be deceived by the appeal of sin. I can't begin to imagine what David would think about every time he thought about this child who died because of his sin. Not because of anything that child did, but because of his sin. God, and later on, God is going to let David live with a great many consequences of this sin. And the reason for that is because God does not just want to um, give David this kind of cheap forgiveness, but His desire is to conform David to His holiness. And the way that God does that is by saying, David, I'm going to let you live with the consequences of your sin so that you'll no longer be deceived into thinking that sin won't cost you anything. And God does the very same thing for us. He lets us pay the cost of the, he, the consequences. He lets us deal with those consequences and live with them so that maybe next time we won't be deceived into thinking, well, if I do this, there will be some great reward. Instead, we'll be reminded of the consequences of it. The fourth truth that we need to take heed of this morning is the acknowledgement of sin. The acknowledgement of sin. In response to God's Word through Nathan, I want you to notice the simplicity of David's confession. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Period. This acknowledgement is what distinguishes David from, for example, Saul. When God sent the prophet Samuel to confront Saul over his sin, Saul first denied it. I've obeyed the word of the Lord, he said. And then when Samuel showed him proof of how he had not obeyed the word of the Lord, then Saul kind of hedged and said, Oh yeah, well, I... I didn't do everything that I was told, but I did most of it. And the only reason I didn't do all of it is because I feared the people and they made me do this thing. And so he denied his sin. He downplayed his sin. He tried to shift the blame for it. In contrast, David just says simply but emphatically, I have sinned against the Lord. Period. No excuses, no dodging, no hemming or hawing, no blame shifting. Just plain old straightforward, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, I don't want us to be deceived by the briefness or simplicity of that confession because in addition to what he says in this moment, which the writer sums up under, I have sinned against the Lord, David also wrote Psalm 51, which contains the historical inscription, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So Psalm 51 was written in response to this Event, And so if you want to see how this confession, this acknowledgement, I have sinned against the Lord, that gets fleshed out a great deal in Psalm 51. David speaks very thoroughly about his sin. So the fact that David wrote that down and then that he gave it to the choir master, that's also in the inscription for Psalm 51, to the choir master. So David, what he does is, 
he says here to Nathan in the moment, I have sinned against the Lord. And then I don't know if he did it later that day or maybe in the next week or whatever. But he sat down and he wrote the words of Psalm 51. Then he, he took it to the choir master and said, here you go. Think about that. Think about, you know, say, here, I want this to be used in the worship of the church, in the worship of God's people. So what that means is that David confessed his sin publicly. He wanted other people to hear what he says to Nathan here when he says, I have sinned against the Lord. He wanted his repentance to become an opportunity for others to repent as well. Now, we don't always have to confess every sin publicly. So that's not what I'm suggesting here is that we all get together every Sunday and just lay out a laundry list of here's all the things I did wrong this week. But there are times when that needs to be done. Uh, when our sin is against someone else, we may need to confess that sin to them as well. James says, tells us to confess your sins to one another. When our sin has consequences for other people, then we need to let our confession be as public as the sin. So if your sin affects, say, a handful of people, then you need to go and talk to that handful of people. And if your sin somehow affects a big group of people, then you might need to stand up in that big group of people and say, here's how I've sinned. Please forgive me. And when we need help renouncing some sin, then we may need to confess it to someone in confidence. So you, there may, you may be thinking right now of some sin in your life that just won't seem to let loose. And one of, the, one of the tools God has given us in that is to talk to someone else. Tell them that so that they can help you, so that they can ask you about it, so that they can encourage you, maybe give you some, uh, some ways to combat that sin. Acknowledging sin is often the first step in being reconciled to God and restored to usefulness in His kingdom. Now, so far we've paid a lot of attention to the costliness of sin. The fifth truth that we need to take heed of is the costliness of grace. The costliness of grace. Just as straightforward as David's confession, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Look again at verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now Nathan explains in the next verse that the consequences of David's sin will still stand. But the announcement here is that the penalty of David's sin has been commuted. Remember, the wages of sin is death. But God says to him, Here the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Of course, this doesn't mean that this does not mean that you know, David is now immortal. It means that God will not make him bear the wages of his own sin. He will not die in an eternal sense. But why do I speak of the costliness of grace? Because many people have a cheap view of grace. They think that grace means that, well, God's just going to forgive everyone no matter what. But that's not how grace works. It's often been said that God's grace is free, but it ain't cheap. What that means is that God gives His grace freely to David. And He gives His grace freely to any of us who will confess our sin to Him and repent of it and trust in Christ. The only thing that David has earned is death. The wages of sin is death. Meaning all of us have gone to work and the paycheck that we get is death. Because the work we've put in is sin and the paycheck that we get is death. But God gives David what he has not earned. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Uh, 
So if we think that David's getting away with something, then we need to consider our own sinfulness because God's grace toward us is just as costly as it was toward David. God's grace to us cost Him His only begotten Son. And so God will not allow us to cheapen His grace by wrongly thinking that we can refuse to trust in His Son while still being reconciled to Him. Right? God said, here is the particular way that I've loved the world, that I've given my only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. So there's a wideness there, whoever, but there's a narrowness, whoever will believe in Him. If you, if you refuse that offer, then you are already under condemnation and you stay under condemnation. But for those who believe in Him, they receive an immediate, unconditioned pardon and life from the judge of all the world. And that is what we see God do for David. God loved David and showed grace to David not just, by, not just in any way, but in a particular kind of way, by sending Nathan to confront him and to call him to faith and repentance. And that leads us to the sixth and final truth of which we need to take heed this morning, the instrument of grace. The instrument of grace. I think my favorite sentence in this whole chapter is the very first sentence. Look back at verse 1, chapter 12 begins with, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. It's so simple that it would be easy to overlook. But that sentence, the Lord sent Nathan to David, that sentence reveals the how of God's grace. How does God show grace to David? The answer is by sending Nathan to him. In fact, I want you to glance back at the last sentence of chapter 11. I've made reference to this, I think, the past couple Sundays, but the, the uh, chapter divisions are not inspired by God. They, they were added by Bible translators to help us find it. It's a lot easier to say, turn to 2 Samuel 12, 1, than to say, turn somewhere in the first third of the you know, book of 2 Samuel, that kind of thing. It's a way of helping us find it. But sometimes it can be helpful to just read it as if the chapter division were not there. And that, this is an example of that. Chapter 11 ends by saying, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That's a really ominous sounding thing at the end of chapter 11. After all that David has done, and he thinks he's gotten away with it, and he says to Joab, Don't let this matter displease you. And then it ends with, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Notice how chapter 12 begins. In fact, let's just read those two sentences back to back as if there were no division. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. What David did was evil in God's sight. And God's response was to send His word to David via Nathan. To call David back from his rebellion, from despising the word of the Lord. That is grace. And Nathan is the instrument of God's grace. Grace does not mean downplaying David's sin, sweeping it under the rug. God does not say, well, David is overall a pretty good guy, and he just made one mistake. And I would sure hate to let this one mistake outweigh all the good that David has done. No, that's not what God says. The Lord was displeased with what David had done. It was evil in his eyes. 
His response to that, however, was to send His Word to David. I mentioned Psalm 51. The setting for Psalm 51 is not just David's sin with Bathsheba. The setting for Psalm 51 is Nathan's confrontation with David. It is a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So Nathan's loving confrontation was the instrument that God used to restore David. Nathan gets to be the one who announced God's, announces God's grace to David only because he's also the one who went and confronted David in love over his sin. So that truth applies to our lives in at least two ways. Two ways that truth applies to us. First, that we must pursue the instruments of God's grace. We must pursue the instruments of God's grace. I hope and pray that your takeaway from Psalm 21 is not this. Or excuse me, from, from 2 Samuel 12 is not this. I hope your takeaway is not, well, the, the takeaway is that I should just kind of live my life to the best I can and trust that if I you know, kind of wander too far off into sin, that God will send someone to call me back. God, hear me, God was not obligated to send Nathan to David. God had already spoken clearly in His Word. David had everything he needed to know that what he had done was wrong and that he needed to repent and to turn in surrender to the Lord. Nathan's confrontation was God's grace. God may do the same in our lives. There are times when we may wander so far off the path that God sends someone to intersect us and to call us back to Him. But we need to be careful that we don't take away the, the impression that, well, we can just live our lives however we please and expect that God's going to send a Nathan to call us back. The takeaway for us should be that we ought to pursue the instruments of God's grace, meaning we should go and look for the Nathans in our life. And we should try to stay as close to the Nathans as we can. So what does that mean practically? Well, it means we, we put ourselves into situations where we are regularly hearing God's Word so that we're being corrected and reproved and taught and trained in righteousness. So every Sunday when we gather, and whether it's me or Colby or whoever stands and preaches, we are standing, as it were, in the place of Nathan. We have the joyful burden of loving confrontation. Every sermon is confrontational in nature. I'm not speaking to people who have arrived. I'm not just here to kind of give you a pat on the back. There's part, of, part of preaching is that, to say, persevere, keep running the race, don't grow weary. But part of it is also, okay, you are not there yet. We're still on the race. We're still on the path. And so we need that on a corporate level. We need to be in situations where we're hearing that call, where we're hearing the voice of the shepherd. But we also need that on a more one-to-one -one basis often. When we're not living and speaking and thinking in the truth, we need others around us who love us enough to remind us of God's Word and God's character, what He's called us to be and to do as His people. So a lot of times where that can take place is in a small group setting like Sunday school where you're in an environment where you're... It's, it's not 
you know, a big crowd, but it's a small group and you're able to just talk about what's going on in your life and you're able to speak to one another in a more in a way that more directly applies to your situation rather than a broad setting like this. I was thinking as I was working through this that um, probably the most common Nathan in, in my life is Rebecca. She's there to speak truth into my life, um, to help me, as Paul says, to uh, think on things that are true and noble and pure and that sort of thing. So... God uses other people in our lives as instruments of His grace to call us to Himself and to keep us in His hand. And we don't just need to kind of wait for them to intervene, but we need to pursue that. The second way this applies is that we must be the instruments of God's grace. In other words, if, if we need other people to do that for us, then other people need us to do that for them. Somewhere along the way, the American church got the idea that Another believer's sin is none of our business. Who am I to tell someone else about their sin when I know that I have so much sin in my own life? That sounds humble, but it's not because Jesus told us to do the opposite of that. What you say, wait a minute, Matt, I thought Jesus said, don't judge lest you be judged. No, Jesus said that just be careful when you judge because the measure you use is going to be used toward you, right? And then he tells the parable about be, be careful about being the person who goes around and, and points and says, oh, you've got a piece of sawdust in your eye when you're walking around with a two-by-four in your head. The point of that parable is not that you can never point out a speck of sawdust in your friend's eye. The point of the parable is take the plank out first, then go help them with their speck of sawdust. So it's, it's true that our job is not to go around pointing out every single sin we see in someone else's life. And there, there has to be some humility here. But it is neither humble nor loving to let a fellow brother or sister in Christ live in known unrepentant sin without us ever questioning them or saying, Hey, what you're doing here, what you're saying here, it's not in line with what God has told us to be and to do as His people. Can you imagine how unloving it would have been for Nathan to say, Who am I to go and confront David? That's none of my business. I'm not perfect. I've got sin in my own life. What sad consequences might there have been if Nathan refused to be the instrument of God's grace in David's life? In a similar way, Jesus commands us, Matthew 18, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We are meant to call one another to repentance. Calling someone to repentance does not mean that I think I'm perfect. It doesn't mean that you think you're perfect. If anything, it's something we can do in love, knowing that we'll need them to return the favor one day. God has designed us to need one another, and He intends to use us as instruments of His grace in one another's lives. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment. This is our opportunity to respond to God's Word. And again, I want to just lovingly impress on you the fact that um, what has just happened for you and for me, it's, uh, it's a peculiar thing 
how even when I stand to preach, I get convicted by what I'm saying. So I don't want you to think that uh, I'm just speaking to you. But what has just happened in the past 30 or so minutes is the very thing that happened to David via Nathan, that God has come along into your life and intersected you with His Word using an imperfect messenger, but one who hopefully has declared to you what God has said. And now the response is, don't be like Saul did when Samuel came to him and he said, oh, I'm pretty good. I've obeyed most of it. Uh, and even where I've failed, it's other people's fault. No, let's be like David. I've sinned against the Lord. No excuse, no hedging, no hemming or hawing about it. Just plain old straightforward, yeah, you're right. I've sinned against the Lord. And here are the ways. Maybe there's someone today that you need to go talk to, someone whom you've sinned against that you need to go talk to and say, I'm sorry. Ask their forgiveness. We, we certainly all need to be right with God today. So I'm going to be standing at the head of this aisle. I'd love to speak with you or pray with you this morning. The altar's open if you'd like to come and pray. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for uh, Your justice. God, that You don't just let sin go. We see Your justice clearly at the cross that this is how thoroughly You have hated sin and how offended You are by sin that You sent Your own Son to take on our flesh and to become our sin and to die in our place. But God, we also see there a picture of Your grace that You have... Um, you have taken our sin upon Yourself. You've taken the, the judgment and the punishment upon Yourself so that we might be uh, instruments of Your forgiveness and reconciliation, objects of Your forgiveness. And so, God, I pray that You would... Uh, God, help us to be amazed by that truth this morning. And God, that we would not treat our sin lightly, that we would not make excuses for it or try to justify it in any way, but that we would simply confess it and acknowledge it to You that we might find forgiveness and reconciliation and that we would be restored to usefulness in Your kingdom just as David was. God, uh, there may be some here today who are dealing with some besetting sin, some sin that just won't seem to let loose. I pray that You would break it, break its hold over their life and give them freedom from it. God, I pray that You would... Uh, Help them, Lord, to see how the, you've allowed them to live with the consequences of their sin so that they would be chastised to turn from it. God, would you show your grace and mercy to us this morning? We pray all this in Jesus' name.